Welcome back to Range Anxiety. I'm your host, Martin Donnan, giving you 30 years of automotive tuning experience in 30 minutes. Yep, and this morning, I'm on my way to work. And we're going to do a little impromptu session that I've been getting hassled about so much in feedback. Right, today's session... Actually, the feedback's been really good. Cheetahs came up so well. There were people like giving me all sorts of new experiences about cheating in race cars that I didn't even know about. Some of them are really big names though, so yeah, we're not going to go there. <laughs> if only you knew what I'd heard, oh my goodness. But today, we're getting back to our most requested piece so far, and that is the finishing of the Ford guys, which is quite relevant as I just had a Boss 290 pull up next to me. You can probably hear him rumbling away in the background. Now, as I mentioned earlier, in the original Tuna Wars 4, I think it was, Highwayman, about the Ford tuning scene, I managed to snag a car out of the Boss of Ford Australia at the time, very cheap, and I love these things. What wasn't to love? Four litre, straight six, turbocharged, it was always going to be better than an LS. Let me say that again. It was always going to be better than a normally aspirated 5.7. Just use the multiplication factor of four liters plus turbo and a thousand horsepower plus sky is the limit. Whereas with a normally aspirated engine, you're pretty much locked to how much atmospheric air you can push through the thing. However, the scene was very, very immature. Ford guys weren't used to being tuned and they certainly weren't used to having cars that were competitive in terms of outright performance with the GM product at the time. Hence, there was a lot of silliness that went on. And the silliness wasn't so much the owners. I was one of them, I was, I was pretty silly, but the silliness was mainly the people tuning them because they saw a market that was a little naive and a little fresh and a little new and they just turned the screws on these people to try and make them buy stuff and do things that they probably shouldn't have done and probably didn't really even want to do. So I spoke to you about one tuner who used to run like a traveling circus and instead of juggling balls around the country tuning cars on the street he would leave a destruction of cylinder blocks, engine blocks with holes through them, detonated pistons, and various other forms of mechanical carnage, all sort of uh, growing on the fact that he could reinvent the laws of physics. He could make an injector at 100% duty cycle flow, 200% duty cycle. He could actually tune the engine around soft valve springs so you didn't have to replace valve springs. Fuel pumps being too small, not a problem. And there were some really sorry tales. Smash motors everywhere, unhappy people everywhere. And after that, the scene calmed down a little bit. But let's take a look at some of the engines in particular. The Boss 260, the V8 quad cam, iron block, alloy heads, looked like an absolute ball terror on paper. This thing looked to have all of the fruit. However, it really, it didn't work that way in real life. The Boss 260 was an all right engine, but what it had was a mismatch of four to stroke ratio, ratio versus what the, the cylinder heads 
their flow rate. So we had heads that were essentially off the 4.6 modular Mustang, four valve, twin cam per bank, designed to make good airflow at good RPM, tied to a 5.4 litre bottom end that was a Triton truck engine out of a F-Series or other commercial products that um, Ford US had at the time. So one, the top end of the engine wanted to rev to 7,500 RPM and the bottom end of the uh, engine wanted to rev to 5,500 RPM. So the happy medium was found by Ford, their engineers in the lab at the time, to rev it to 6,000 RPM or 6,100 or 200 RPM. Someone will correct me here. There'll be some blue oval people bleeding blue that'll tell me how wrong I am there. But what would happen is that when you had these engines on the dyno, they would be a bit, little bit lacklustre down low because of the way the cam timing and the, the cylinder heads work. And then about four and a half grand, they would come on song and they would rip and they would make great numbers and just bang, stop short at the rev limiter. Oh, how frustrating that was. Now, initially there was nothing you could do about that. But once all the good tuning software came online, well, there was plenty you could do about that. People started pushing the rev limiters on these things. And of course, what would happen as they pushed the rev limiters was that the conrods would come out the side. They had a massive long rod and it was quite weak. So anything you did to the inertial load of the rod bearing would have some fairly sinister consequences in the long run. And yeah, there were throwing rods out of V8s everywhere. In fact, I remember going to one dyno cell here in Adelaide and I saw it was quite a small cell and it had uh, it had like um, fibre blueboard walls on it and there was an impression of half a conrod and a piston, I kid you not, through the wall. Now, we spoke about this in some depth afterwards, me and a couple of mates, and we figured that they were also in the game and we figured that that rod didn't actually come out of the engine. He picked it up. Well, it did come out of the engine, but it would have landed on the floor like they normally do. But he got so frustrated, this guy. He picked it up and he, what was left of it, and threw it through the wall. Yep, he'd squeezed that lemon a little bit too hard and hop goes the weasel. So yeah, there was plenty of this going on. And the supercharger boys had a, a field day with them then, and particularly the centrifugal guys because this engine with some air and a bit more rev limit would make some awesome power to blow a supercharged LS1 out of the water on the dyno. Rarely ever happened on the track, but on the dyno, you know, I, re I remember driving a centrifugal um, car at Heathcote Raceway at 260 with a stock engine and it made good solid power. It made like 600 horsepower at the wheels. It was a manual, but by goodness, getting it into the mid 12s was difficult even on a reasonable tyre set because it just didn't have that combination that worked effectively. To make matters even worse, Ford in their rush to bring their LS1 killer to market, oh dearie me, they actually left the knock sensors out of it. That's right. There were two holes or two bosses in the block. You know, two bosses in the boss block, you like that? Four knock sensors. There was a provision in the software, like switch them on and the knock control system would work, but there was no sensors, no wiring, and the holes for the knock sensors weren't even tapped. So they rushed this thing so fast that it had no knock control. And that, you know, you can probably get away with that 
if you're really good and you really know what you're doing as a tuner and you know that your clients are going to do the right thing as far as looking after the engine and fueling it is concerned. But no, of course that didn't happen. Now combine this with people sending out tunes for these non-knock controlled V8 engines that were aggressive in the timing to make more power. Now it is sending out generic tunes and disaster was normally what followed. There were some people, you know, there were some guys that got away with it and some tuners pulled their heads in a little and offered sensible power level increases, but those that, you know, laid four or five degrees of spark into these engines and the timing map at the top end, these things had more rattles than a millionaire's child. They, you know, it, it, was, it was bad news at the time. It was so wild west. And people were going to dyno days, and I don't care if it's, you know, got machine gun detonation at the top end, I made more power than you. And, of course, when it all went wrong, and it went wrong big, it was like, I don't know why that happened. Well, I know, and anyone with half a brain would know. Absolute carnage. And people got onto that, and, and there were folks up the XR6 Turbo forums back in the day that would actually go to, because... They could get, as I covered earlier, in the, in the SCT Advantage X-Cal tuning boxes, they could get three different tunes in the X-Cal 1. They would get three different tunes from three different tuners. So they never felt particularly tied to one person. So they never felt particularly tied to one dyno shop either. So what they would do, there was one guy in particular. He was a bloody legend. I reckon he used to go by the name of Shifty. And he had a couple of fairly fierce ping tunes. Actually, his, his might have been a turbo. Or did he have an eight? But anyway, what he used to do, and this was common with the eight-cylinder guys, is they would drive around to different dynos in my local area and they would get a weekly health check performed on their car. That's right. They would actually pay $110 or whatever it was back then for a dyno run on their car every week as a health check. So they'd spend $5,500 a year having health checks, i.e. full load, full load dyno runs, and then post the results on the forums. This is how crazy it got. There were some sensible guys, you know. There were guys that were around from the, the GT days back in the era that owned some pretty tough Clevos and even Mustang Windsors from in the day. And, you know, they, they were pretty sensible. They would get a proper custom tune done and put a couple of mods on, okay, full exhaust and an airbox and just leave it at that but they were few and far between the majority of those that followed the traveling circus of tuning were the clowns in the show sorry if i'm hurting any feelings here but i used to sit back and just sigh watching what was going on and none of them were fast you'd get them all out after they got a few hectic dyno results there were you know ls1 cam beating territory You'd get them out of the drags and they'd run like 0.1 faster than stock sometimes if they were autos and the majority would be slower than stock. And it would be like, oh, my car's got too much power for the track. My tyres were wrong. I couldn't get better than 2.260 foot. And best part was you'd never see them again at a racetrack because racetracks lie. It was like a guy I used to deal with when you'd shown the data logging from his race car. Nope, don't believe it. Data logging lies. It's a bit like that um, joke with the Kiwi uh, farmer and the ventriloquist Aussie comes over and offers to talk to the animals for him in exchange for some water and uh, he says, no, sheep lies. Sorry, Kiwi friends, we love you, Brew. 
Um, so the V8 scene was a little bit of a mess. Slowly but surely, there were some camshafts developed, there were some good blower kits developed, there were some fuel systems that actually worked developed, and the scene matured. But never was there the amount of carnage that we saw with the turbo engine. Turbo engines lend themselves in general to being blown up. Why is that? Well, it comes back to the old adage of lose control of the boost, lose control of the fuel system, lose control of the engine, and you end up with a big mess. And Ford sort of played the game here and gave us a car with the XR6 turbo that had horrifically little fuel injectors, I think they're 24 pound per hour, combined with a little fuel pump, combined with a turbo that even if you put one or two PSI more boost in the thing and, and tune the car up slightly, you were actually out a fuel system. And a lot of the tuners at the time, this was their first chance at getting onto something, so were blue oval guys that made some grunt, they wouldn't understand that 45 degree line in the air fuel ratios at the end. And that was the fuel system being totally dry, only engine running on pure detonation. Yeah. They did it. And, you know, sets of injectors weren't as cheap as they were now. They were barely cheap. I think the common upgrade was a set of the green Bosch 768 36 pounders. They were quite easy to tune. There was calibration data in the SCT software for them. Uh, so people would put them in and they would tune the engine and then they would put a like a Walbrow equivalent or a Delphi pump in the back and they would get these things sort of half going. But there were plenty that didn't want to spend that money. You know, that wasn't a $350 traveling circus tune where you were the clown. These were professionally carried out tunes with $1,500 worth of hardware and labor plus the cost of the tune. You were spending with a box maybe three and a half, four grand to, to get this kind of job done, which I thought was a great idea. But not everyone thought that way. So a lot of people would just wing it. And they would wing it with their machine gun detonation, their Ratley cars, cars that had run out of fuel at the track and blow up. Horrible stuff. And just like the LS, the Falcons of the era suffered with their standard fuel system from fuel tank level. I remember I tuned an engine once for a shop that still does a lot of stuff in Adelaide. You know, I, I would go out because I was the expert, allegedly, on tuning these engines. And they built a little piston and rod XR6 turbo it had a I think a factory turbo on it maybe a bigger compressor wheel this is like 12 13 years ago uh, an XCAL one a big exhaust some China intercooler on it they wanted to run 20 pounds of boost in it that built the auto so I set it up on the dyno and it made something like 380 kilowatts at the wheels and and it was fairly conservative it was a conservative tune because I'm a bit of a scaredy cat like that. I don't like blowing shit up. It, you know, I'd rather give you back 15, 20 less kilowatts than an engine that lasts five, 10 years rather than one that, you know, the, the flame that burns brightly, but not for very long. Boom. And these donkeys then proceeded to road test it. And they took it out on an expressway near where I was working and ran it up to 130 mile an hour, you know, way above the speed limit, obviously and brought it back running on five with the engine smoking and a cylinder that had just been totally detonated out of it total carnage screwed the whole thing i didn't hear about it at the time i heard about it when i got a legal letter you tuned our engine and uh it blew up 
we want you to pay $8,000. I'm there, right, oh, where's the car? Went out there, I knew exactly what had happened here. These pillocks wouldn't listen, they were proper peanuts. Still are to this day. I went out and had a look at it, and sure enough, it had the fuel gauge just on empty. So I said, there's your problem, kids. You ran this thing dry, what do you mean? Now these guys had only ever played with slow stuff before and stuff that ran on carburetors that had float bowls to protect it and didn't make any power anyway but this thing was a whole new kettle of fish so what would happen is when you got a good bit of g-force up in these cars and it happens to most production cars saddle tanks is not so bad now is that the fuel would run away from the pickup with the natural g-forces of the movement of the vehicle which doesn't happen when you're on a dyno strangely enough the body of the car isn't moving so these guys took it out filled it full of air the fuel system at full noise leaned it out burnt the shit out of it the knock sensors couldn't save it you know they'd take five or six degrees out of it but the fact that combustion temperatures were through the roof and it was running on air could not be saved and blew it up and i said here peanuts here's what you've done go back to school learn what the hell you're doing before you charge customers big bucks and fix it yourselves strangely enough that was the last i ever heard from their lawyer and their insurance company stupid and LS1s did the same, but because they were in the hole normally aspirated, the fuse would burn for a lot longer before the engine burned. So they would get away with it and just go, there's something wrong with my car, the trap speeds down 10 mile an hour at the drags. Fill the bloody tank, you gooses. And if you're listening to this today and you take one to the track and you don't have a proper fuel system, which is quite hard to do in an LS because they're a deadhead. <clears throat> they weren't quite as easy as the Falcons, deadhead fuel system. Put a surge tank in it that gives you a litre to a litre and a half or you know, a quarter of a gallon or whatever capacity. That is if you want to run top low tank levels. Either that or top the thing up to the brim and run it totally full. It's not that hard to work out. But it was very hard back in the day. And I still see geniuses now that are the best tuners in the world. Because they've been doing it for 15 minutes that are popping cars at the racetrack. And you know that's... One thing, as a tuner, you kind of hate. You love it, but you hate it, is when a new racetrack opens in your vicinity. Now, we're lucky to have had one of the most beautiful facilities in the world open next to us, or not far from us in South Australia, the Bend Motorsport Park, and it is superb, and I love going there when I'm driving. But it brought an influx of cars, and a lot of them were forwards with people going, I want to tune my car up. I've never tuned it, but I want to tune it up and lean on it. Now it's done a, you know, 200,000 Ks, 120,000 miles. I want to lean on it now so I can take it to the racetrack and I want to find the limits. It's like, no, don't do that. Racetracks are great work creation schemes for tuners and engine builders. But it takes me an extra 15 minutes every time I'm doing one of these jobs to explain to the owners, keep it full short shift it i'm not extending your rev limiter let's not make a mess of this thing all over the ground and they go uh-huh 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 then they take it out and they do it anyway and go it was slowing down at the end of the straight now that place has got a big long massive beautiful straight and for race cars it's great but for road cars that are tired well past their use by date and are tuned off their brain it is a graveyard and sure enough there was that initial sugar rush of everyone going out there with their tuned up road cars and about three quarters straight in, you know, fifth gear or top gear or whatever it was. 
that full RPM, you could do 150 mile an hour, 160 mile an hour down there if your car was good enough. Yep, we used to call the exit a big lane, Conrod Alley. It wasn't Conrod Strait, it was Conrod Alley, because that's normally where they would cry for freedom. Thankfully, that track is now 18 months old or two years old or two and a half years old, whatever it is. And the people going there have matured a bit. It's sort of cut some of the riffraff out and people can go there and actually have fun now. But it, it doesn't matter what track it is or even if it's a drag strip. People that have never gone there before will go. And they, they, you know, that's great. We've got to get new people into motorsport. But they will go there and they won't listen. And they'll blow the things up and you will be the dickhead that blew their car up. Yes, I know. It's normal. It's frustration. I'm venting. I'm on my way to work. The Tesla's looking at me back through the dashboard going, what's wrong with you? You should have a positive mindset today. Well, I do. And I actually feel even better when I get this stuff off my chest. So, wind the clock forward some 15 years. The XR6 Turbo Forum, I think, is mainly dead. Most forums are. Social media did a good job of executing them. And now you can build an XR6 Turbo that is not only fast and reliable, but in street guys will run a genuine nine-second quarter mile. And if you throw a bit of money at it, there's guys all around the country. Not many because not many of them listen and not many of them have the dedication and experience, but there's guys pretty much in every state that can build you a nine second reliable XR6 turbo. And in some instances, they are running eights with aftermarket transmissions, I think. I think there is one or two six speed autos that are built running eights. And you know, that's just an incredible feat and they're still drivable on the road. Why are they drivable on the road? because they're turbocharged and you don't need to put massive cams in them and ruin the drivability to make the speed. Now this was always going to be the case with the XR6 Turbo. It was going to be the gun thing. It was going to be the replacement for the VL Turbo and it was always going to be faster than a similarly modified street style LS. I mean, you can make anything fast if you, you know, sit on a milk crate and drive it with chopsticks. It weighs nothing and it's set up as a dedicated drag car, so don't give me that argument. The XR6 Turbo, done right, will always be faster. The problem is just not too many people want to do them right. Now, like I said, there are some. And here's a hot tip for you. I told you I was going to talk about some of the incredibly stupid prices people are paying for Japanese classics now and even Holden's. All the local rednecks are buying 25-year-old, 30-year-old Benzes now in my area because, the area in which I work, because they can't afford the Holdens. Their prices have gone through the roof. So my tip to you today is if you are interested and you want something to put in the shed, get yourself a dead stock factory original XR6 Turbo of any of the genres, VA onwards, get the best one you can find with the least amount of mods and put it in the shed. Look at the stupid money people are paying for VL turbos now. So you're, and you know, the XR6 turbos have gone up a little bit, but 15 grand should find you an absolutely brilliant early model car that you can put in the shed and save for a non-ping tune, a proper tune that you're allowed to do to it. But that is it. Don't touch exhaust, don't touch a fuel system, and in five to 10 years, it won't take so long this time, you'll be sitting on something that's worth three to four times the value. 
So hopefully if you've got an XR6 Turbo that's mint on car sales right now for sale, I've done you a big favour. If you have, then drop me. If I have, then drop me a line to dtech, D-T-E-C-H, at ecnet.com.au and give me some feedback. That probably hasn't quite finished Tuna Wars with the Ford boys because there was some craziness. There was some more stupid stuff. But what we have done is finished off talking about the lack of maturity in the early days of the Ford tuning segment, but the wonderful, mature, and highly paced thing that it has developed into. So thank you for listening to Range Anxiety, and you'll hear from me again soon.